0: Right, hello, I'm Faith Binks, I'm from Worcester College and I'm going to be talking to you uh, about Catherine Mansfield, she's my great writer of the day. Um, I'm going to start off with a very, very brief sort of biographical uh, talk about Mansfield, uh, give you a little bit of a sense of of why she might have been chosen for the honor of being a great writer. And then I'm gonna kind of move on to talk about, um, I suppose, one of the more specific aspects of my research on Mansfield and what I'm particularly interested uh, in her because of, which is uh, her relationship to certain kinds of periodical culture, so textual culture. So I'm gonna sort of talk about methodology a little bit. And then I'm gonna close by looking at three particular examples of fiction by Mansfield, uh, which are are produced in a in a periodical that I'm really fascinated by, called Rhythm, which is produced between 1911 and 1913. So chronologically, I'm really, really close to um, Rebecca Beasley's talk on on Blast, um, and it might be that you know it'll be helpful to kind of refer between the two talks as I go through. Okay, so probably quite a lot of you will have heard of Mansfield, quite a lot of you will probably have read Mansfield in a variety of contexts, and this is one of the reasons why she's so interesting as a writer. Her dates are 1888 to 1923, I mean, she died famously young of tuberculosis, um, and there's a real biographical fascination with Mansfield. She's had many, many biographies written on her, the most recent of which only appeared round about this time last year. Um, She's also the subject of, she inspires huge numbers of people, very diverse numbers of people. Um, There's an enormous amount of academic interest about her. There's a really lively Catherine Mansfield Society, which if you just Google the name, Catherine Mansfield will come up fairly high on your list of hits. Um, but she doesn't just kind of um, generate interest within the academic community. She's also a source of huge inspiration, I think, for a variety of creative artists. She's had uh, plays written about her. She's had films written about her. So there's a way in which I think you, you can sort of see her interacting on a very wide level with, with uh, the ways in which people kind of understand and, and enjoy literature and the way in which they conceive of literature and the role of a writer. She gets um, There's an amazing film, which you might be able to find, um, in which she's played by Jane Birkin, <laughs> which is kind of incredible, in 1986 in a film called Leave Fair, so if you want to get a a sense of some of the different ways in which she's been reinterpreted, that film is is a really interesting kind of place to start. She's also a short story writer, she's most famous for her short fiction, she never actually writes a novel. Um, This isn't by any means the end of what she does, she's also a fascinating critic, Uh, she produces a range of critical material across the course of her relatively short career, but it's her fiction that she's really, really well known for. Um, she's also very famous for her journal, which the journal is a contentious document which was edited initially by her husband, John Middleton Murray, who often plays the villain in kind of histories of Mansfield, w- slightly unfairly I think, but anyway we won't, we won't go there. Um, she's, um, and that's been re-edited kind of on subsequent occasions and there's a new uh, very comprehensive volume of her short fiction coming out I think in 2013 which I think will you know, renew interest in her work and will give a, a very different picture of what she's actually all about. She's got a very particular sort of prose style, which for me is very, very closely related to um, her experiments as a modernist writer really. She writes in a very stripped down, a very pared down style, which you could see as being closely connected to other experimental authors of the the period. She's contemporary with Wolfe and she's contemporary with D.H. Lawrence and she has quite awkward, but very productive relationships with both of those individuals. She's a great rival as well as a a friend of Wolfe. But the thing that's interesting about her, and one of the reasons why she's found her way into literary culture in in these quite paradoxical ways, is the fact that she writes about women and she writes about children. She writes about domestic environments in a way that has allowed her to be seen as quite a kind of cutesy writer. It's allowed her to be anthologized in all sorts of ways which you wouldn't expect, say, Wolf to be anthologized. And it's allowed her to have a kind of popularity um, which maybe you wouldn't find with other writers who are, who are challenging in the way that she's challenging. But at the same time, she's also aware, and she's very much aware of this at the time that she's working, that this presents certain problems in terms of her, if you like, respectability or profile. Uh, Some of her stories, she says, my God, people are gonna think this is like the infant primer, uh, because she kind of understands that, you know, there's a way in which if you're dealing with domestic contexts and you're kind of reconfiguring female and feminine experience, then actually you you run a certain risk of not being taken seriously, certainly at the time she's writing in the kind of early decades of the 20th century. She's also, of course, in a way, I've left the most famous thing about her to last, which is that she's a New Zealand writer. She's probably one of the most, if if not the most famous New Zealand writer, um, I think certainly in the Northern Hemisphere. So one of the things which is most significant about her, which I want to talk about in a little bit more detail, is the fact that she writes about colonial experience. She writes about what it's like to kind of be a woman in New Zealand. She writes about um, different ways in which kind of the one's identity alters I suppose within the kind of colonial context that she herself has experienced both when living in New Zealand and growing up in New Zealand and when she's kind of transplanted to London as a sort of emigre. She lives most of her life outside of New Zealand in London and also in France. So this is, one of the, you know, this is one of the reasons for choosing her, actually, is I think if you're thinking about kind of great writers, you immediately maybe that conjures up the idea of these massive figures, these canonical names, these kind of unassailable reputations. Mansfield, I- during her own lifetime, is very aware that she doesn't really fall into that category, and she deals with those issues basically throughout her kind of career. And it's one of the things which I think helps us to maybe explore the idea of greatness and what it actually means to think about reputations um, and not just to kind of understand understand them to be guaranteed by the quality of writing, but also maybe to think a little bit in more depth about, about ideas of identity and, and what we mean when we talk about a writer. It might seem really, really self-evident, but I think I'm, I'm gonna hope to persuade you that there's there are kind of interesting things going on there that, that might be worth a good deal of consideration okay so one of the ways in which i consider this is thinking about mansfield as a writer within a particular kind of publishing printing periodical context Um, and one of the reasons why i was drawn to periodicals was when i was an undergraduate I, i kind of i used to see these footnotes which would refer to periodical texts i really didn't have much of a sense of what they were at all. Um, So it was a kind of curiosity which sort of drove me to look at them. Although at that time it was actually really quite hard to find this material. Now I should say over the course of the last, probably 10 years or so, this situation has changed radically. And one of the things which I'm hoping that after people have listened to this talk they might want to do is to go and look up something called the Modernist Journals Project, which is a free resource, which is available online um, from Brown University, which actually has full text facsimile um, versions of Certainly, Rhythm, the periodical that I'm going to be talking about, also Blast, and a huge range of other sort of periodicals from the period of, of early modernism, um, which just allows you to kind of go and explore on your own. You know, you don't have to rely on anthologies. Um, y- you can actually look at the raw material, which I think is extraordinarily exciting. But periodicals, kind of for me, the, the thing, the reason why I'm so fascinated by them is that if we encounter writers by way of language we encounter language in particular ways. Um, I think the biographical interest in Mansfield might encourage us to think of her as, as somebody who we can read you know, in a kind of detextualized context in terms of a story, a tragic love affair or a young writer struggling with you know, whatever. Whereas actually, there, there's something to be said about the very particular ways in which she actually emerges on the scene, um, it's certainly in London in the first and second decade of the 20th century. Periodicals also have their own tradition. I mean, periodicals, it might be that we've already heard about this earlier in the day, but periodicals have a long and evolving tradition, uh, which is still unfolding. I mean, periodicals are obviously still in publication. Many of you will read them on a daily basis um, online, if not in print form. So there's a way in which that tradition is kind of something else which we had to take into consideration or we might want to take into consideration. Periodicals embrace a huge range of very, very different things. So if we're thinking about Blast, the periodical we've just heard about, you could think about it in terms of little magazines, really experimental, cutting-edge texts, which maybe aren't designed for a very large audience, they make a lot of impact, but you know, we're not imagining that we might stumble across these in WH Smiths. Periodicals also include newspapers, which are extraordinarily popular, widespread. There's many different sort of, you know, different ways in which a newspaper can be produced. Um, And everything else in between, in particular these kind of larger circulation reviews, things like the English Review, um, which which are sort of also around at the time. And there's this ongoing struggle to get a certain kind of literary periodical culture going kind of in England. Um, And I think rhythm is, is very much part of that kind of struggle. You can also see the ways in which the medium sort of becomes part of this conversation, becomes part of what the texts are actually doing. If you, you remember the poem, the pound poem, which we just looked at, the figure of the editor actually appears in that. And that's very significant. And although it's very particular, the way in which Pound does it. It's not that unusual. I mean, periodicals themselves become the subject of writing in periodicals. Um, And that's one of the things Mansfield in particular is is interested in, I think, the ways in which periodical culture shapes our view of the world. Um, And that's one of the sort of elements that she wants wants her readers to consider. Periodicals also help you to think about the ways in which texts change. I mean, we all know texts change. You read story one day, you read it the next day, it might not seem quite the same. But there's obvious, very particular ways in which texts change from one kind of impression to the other. And Mansfield stories do this in a variety of ways. But particularly some of the things which change will be um, specific references to maybe elements of New Zealand culture, names, types of plant, you know, things which would pin her stories down to their original context, maybe get changed as they get reprinted. So it's not the same story that you might read in, say, your penguin edition of um, Catherine Mansfield's short fiction that you would read in rhythm. So there are very uh, valid reasons, I think, for going back and and using periodicals to kind of think about just what a text is, what a story is. You know, it might not be the same thing from, from one moment to one impression to the next and because she's a short fiction writer her work is often anthologized and recontextualized and it's not often reprinted in the order in which it's written um, and I think that also kind of you know editorial work there is reshaping the idea of what her career actually is and that's another thing which that hadn't crossed my mind when I was at school, uh, and it was a bit of a bombshell, to be honest, when I kind of realised that the image that I was getting was just so different from the initial image. It's Not to say that initial image is you know, wrong or incorrect, but it just really, really brings something to the table if you can actually dig a little deeper and explore the ways in which these texts unfold in time. There's all kinds of other things which y- we might want to consider. Um, there's a very awkward division um, throughout the 19th, probably the 18th century as well, between the ideas of literary texts, proper literary texts, if you like, my inverted commas would be flying there, uh, and journalism. And uh, it's, it's a very anxious division because the division is so insecure, um, but one of the things which Mansfield certainly has to deal with, with the I- is this, within this idea of respectability is the sense that if you write for periodicals too much, you end up looking like a journalist. Now, a journalist might not be considered as a proper writer. Um, And so it's another of the things which her work, particularly in Rhythm, actually engages with, deals with, that awkward division between hierarchy, actually, um, different ways of being a writer, different ways of being a proper writer. And finally, one of the things which um, Rhythm really, really sort of draws to one's attention is the fact that these periodicals are also networks of individuals. So if you have something like BLAST, which is the, I don't know, the sort of house journal in a way of the vorticists, there's a sense there that you've got a group of people called the vorticists and they have this identity. Now, you know, Becky had half an hour rather than 15 minutes, then one of the things which obviously happens is you read that, there's a huge amount of controversy about whether vorticism is a group or what that group identity is. And exactly the same thing happens kind of within rhythm. it's a very uncertain question whether it has a group identity or not. Um, And because you can write for one periodical and then maybe write for another periodical at the same time, there are all these issues about who you belong to, what are you writing for, what does it mean to kind of belong to a group writing at a particular time in literary history. And I think for for Mansfield in particular this raises all sorts of issues, um, in particular because the periodical that she writes for before she joins Rhythm is very proprietorial. Um, it, it likes the idea that its contributors only write for it and so therefore she gets drawn into a very conflictual relationship um, with her former colleagues at the New Age and her, if you like, new colleagues in Rhythm and this becomes very productive also produces sort of some very interesting satirical writing. And the final point which I want to make, which is another thing which, when you're thinking about writers and writerly identity, might not spring out at us, although it's it's a really, really well-known thing, uh, which certainly, obviously, if you think about somebody like Eliot, uh, precisely the same thing is going on, is that actually writers don't necessarily write under their own names. Their identities do shift quite considerably, um, and often quite rapidly. So Catherine Mansfield is not actually Mansfield's name. Um, It's not a pseudonym which announces itself as being pseudonymous, but it is. Uh, she also, under, when she's writing in rhythm, she writes for, I suppose, about, with about three or four, maybe five, different pseudonyms, some of which we're going to see in a second. Um, And it allows her to try out different voices, to experiment with different kinds of form, to sort of play around with the idea of what it is, to perform a different sort of of writing identity. And it also allows rhythm much more pragmatically to sort of bulk itself up, to make it look as though it's got like 20 people writing for this journal rather than just five. Uh, So there's very pragmatic ways of reasons for doing this, but it also, it it allows us to think about, I think, writing identities in a set of interesting ways. She calls herself uh, the tiger, (laughs) which is her, um, rather wishful kind of little pet name which she shares with murray she writes a lot of her editorial pieces as the tiger and uh, she also writes as lily heron which is heron is a symbolically important name for her but it allows her to play around with this kind of slightly continental sounding slightly glamorous slightly you know sort of uh maybe slightly french or german kind of identity as well as mansfield and she also writes a very interesting satirical piece as virginia which is very critical um, of kind of masculine hypocrisy And I want to think about the ways, as we close, the ways in which she does these in three particular stories or three particular sort of instances, uh, which appear in 1912. So Rhythm is a magazine which is devoted to post-impressionism, not the kind of post-impressionism which Roger Fry has pioneered in 1910, but post-impressionism all the same. She meets Murray through this magazine. She also meets D. H. Lawrence through this magazine. She makes all kinds of contacts. Um, And she actually, also gets to edit this magazine, which is another hugely significant thing for a woman writer of this period. There's a, a very honorable tradition of women editing modernist periodicals, but it's quite a subsumed tradition in one way, I think. Sometimes if you encounter these texts for the first time, maybe you're not, it's not obvious just how many women are actually involved with their production. And she actually financially supports it. She has a bit of a, a sort of allowance from her dad, and at a certain point they really hit the rocks, and she actually keeps the magazine afloat. So she's got a huge vested interest in, in this particular periodical. And the first story she produces is a, an amazing text called The Woman at the Store, which comes out in spring 1912. And this is a story which is in some ways indebted to earlier writers, earlier Australian writers, um, but it's also indebted to her immediate experience of living in the, of going on a trip um, to the sort of wilds of New Zealand and what she sees there. Um, It's about, it's raw, it's primitive, it's about a woman possibly going mad. On her own, who might or might not have killed her husband. So it's a very kind of naturalist, very dark story uh, about alienation and loss, and it's absolutely the opposite of the image of New Zealand, which uh, you know the Foreign Office and things are sort of presenting at that time when they want people to emigrate. You know, um, she's also pulling no punches about the ways in which she writes as a woman about some of the some of the experiences which might be swept under the carpet, maybe by by sort of other interpretations of what it's like living a kind of domestic life in um, in New Zealand at that time. But once again she also investigates the ways in which periodical texts become involved in this kind of experience so if she's drawing on writing from some australian periodicals of a a slightly earlier generation she also mentions the fact that there are periodicals in the character's house so she talks about this store being plastered with old pages of english periodicals so there's an idea of this woman being sold a certain image or clinging to a certain image of home which is reproduced and stuck up all over this kind of hovel where she's, she's quietly losing it, kind of in the backwoods. So a very satirical comment, I think, a very ambivalent comment about print culture. Um, and when the story is reprinted, it's interesting. There are all kinds of little touches which sort of draw attention to the kind of specific New Zealand quality of this text, which gets slightly bleached out. Some of the names are changed. Um, so it's really worth trying to track down these kind of early versions of the woman at the store. The next story is called "Pow Pearl Button Was Kidnapped which is published not that long afterwards, September 1912. And it's a very satirical story about race, it's a much, slightly less explicit, I think, colonial sort of, um, co- sort of background which she sets up. But we understand that this girl, Pearl Button, who sounds like a figure in a fairy tale, actually finds her way into the company of two dark women, is the phrase that's used. Has a fantastic time. Y- you know, get, goes taken paddling, kind of gets her clothes taken off, gets given cuddles, gets all the kind of affection which, in a way, it's, it's implied she misses. But then the police turn up and she's dragged back to what's referred to as the House of Boxes. So once again, it's full of ambivalence about colonial culture and about the kind of commodity culture and about certain kinds of propriety. But at the same time, it's writing really self-consciously out of that culture, out of those narratives. You can't just think of Mansfield as somebody who's kind of you know, absolutely, I suppose, exploding her colonial context. She's she's consciously a writer who's kind of within it, I think. And this rewriting of fairy tale is a very obvious way of, of kind of reconfiguring those legacies. And finally, one which is harder to find, but which I want to close on, is an absolutely brilliant one called Sunday Lunch. Now, if I, you know, in a way, if I could have had kind of a short section f- up from this, then this would have been the ideal one to close on. She writes this as the Tiger, and she writes it in October 1912, and it's a hysterically funny. I mean, it's genuinely funny uh, satire on kind of London literary culture, uh, and it's all about people kind of sitting around trying to get one over on one another, slagging one another off, off for kind of advertising or publishing in the Daily Mail, which is like, God, absolutely the cardinal sin. Um, so she's actually sort of sending herself up in a strange way, um, but at the same time, also sort of you know making herself part of, but marginalizing herself from that kind of literary culture. It's a, it's a kind of weird performance, but it's a fascinating one. And she ends on this kind of note, on this, this is the closing line. But the horrible tragedy of Sunday lunch is this, However often the society kills and eats itself, it is never real enough to die. It is never brave enough to consider itself well eaten. And that's the line I want to close on. She is a great writer for all of the reasons that I've listed. Go and look at the Modernist Journal's project and find out more about her for yourself. Thanks.